Chapter Ten of Xerxes by Jacob Abbott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. The Burning of Athens, B.C. 480. When the officers of the Persian fleet had satisfied themselves with examining the battlefield at Thermopylae and had heard the narrations given by the soldiers of the terrible combats that had been fought with the desperate garrison which had been stationed to defend the pass they went back to their vessels and prepared to make sail to the southward in pursuit of the greek fleet the greek fleet had gone to salamis the persians in due time overtook them there and a great naval conflict occurred which is known in history as the battle of salamis and was one of the most celebrated naval battles of ancient times an account of this battle will form the subject of the next chapter in this we are to follow the operations of the army on the land as the pass of thermopylae was now in xerxes possession the way was open before him to all that portion of the great territory which lay north of the peloponnesus of course before he could enter the peninsula itself he must pass the isthmus of corinth where he might perhaps encounter some concentrated resistance north of the isthmus however there was no place where the greeks could make a stand the country was all open or rather there were a thousand ways open through the various valleys and glens and along the banks of the rivers all that was necessary was to procure guides and proceed the thessalians were very ready to furnish guides they had submitted to xerxes before the battle of thermopylae and they considered themselves accordingly as his allies they had besides a special interest in conducting the persian army on account of the hostile feelings which they entertained toward the people immediately south of the pass into whose territories xerxes would first carry his ravages this people were the phocaeans their country as has already been stated was separated from thessaly by impassable mountains except where the straits of thermopylae opened a passage and through this pass both nations had been continually making hostile incursions into the territory of the other for many years before the persian invasion the thessalians had surrendered readily to the summons of xerxes while the phocaeans had determined to resist him and adhere to the cause of the greeks in the struggle they were suspected of having been influenced in a great measure in their determination to resist by the fact that the thessalians had decided to surrender they were resolved that they would not on any account be upon the same side with their ancient and inveterate foes the hostility of the thessalians to the phocaeans was equally implacable at the last incursion which they had made into the phocaean territory they had been defeated by means of stratagems in a manner which tended greatly 
to vex and irritate them. There were two of these stratagems, which were both completely successful, and both of a very extraordinary character. The first was this. The Thessalians were in the Phocaean country in great force, and the Phocaeans had found themselves utterly unable to expel them. Under these circumstances, a body of the Phocaeans, six hundred in number, one day whitened their faces, their arms and hands, their clothes, and all their weapons with chalk, and then at the dead of night, perhaps, however, when the moon was shining, made an onset upon the camp of the enemy. The Thessalian sentinels were terrified and ran away, and the soldiers, awakened from their slumbers by these unearthly-looking troops, screamed with fright and fled in all directions in utter confusion and dismay. A night attack is usually a dangerous attempt, even if the assaulting party is the strongest, as in the darkness and confusion which then prevail, the assailants cannot ordinarily distinguish friends from foes, and so are in great danger amid the tumult and obscurity of slaying one another. That difficulty was obviated in this case by the strange disguise which the Phocaeans had assumed. They knew that all were Thessalians who were not whitened like themselves. The Thessalians were totally discomfited and dispersed by this encounter. The other stratagem was of a different character and was directed against a troop of cavalry. The Thessalian cavalry were renowned throughout the world. The broad plains extending through the heart of their country contained excellent fields for training and exercising such troops, and the mountains which surrounded it furnished grassy slopes and verdant valleys that supplied excellent pasturage for the rearing of horses. The nation was very strong, therefore, in this species of force, and many of the states and kingdoms of Greece, when planning their means of internal defense, and potentates and conquerors, when going forth on great campaigns, often considered their armies incomplete, unless there was included in them a corps of Thessalian cavalry. A troop of this cavalry had invaded Phocis, and the Phocaeans, conscious of their inability to resist them in open war, contrived to entrap them in the following manner. They dug a long trench in the ground, and then putting in baskets or casks sufficient nearly to fill the space, they spread over the top a thin layer of soil. They then concealed all indications that the ground had been disturbed by spreading leaves over the surface. The trap being thus prepared, they contrived to entice the Thessalians to the spot by a series of retreats, and at length led them into the pitfall thus provided for them. The substructure of casks was strong enough to sustain the Phocaeans who went over it as footmen, but was too fragile to bear the weight of the mounted troops. The horses broke through, and the squadron was thrown into such confusion by so unexpected a disaster that when the Phocaeans turned and fell upon them, they were easily overcome. 
these things had irritated and vexed the thessalians very much they were eager for revenge and they were very ready to guide the armies of xerxes into the country of their enemies in order to obtain it the troops advanced accordingly awakening everywhere as they came on the greatest consternation and terror among the inhabitants and producing on all sides scenes of indescribable anguish and suffering they came into the valley of the cephasus a beautiful river flowing through a delightful and fertile region which contained many cities and towns and was filled everywhere with an industrious rural population through this scene of peace and happiness and plenty the vast horde of invaders swept on with the destructive force of a tornado they plundered the towns of everything which could be carried away and destroyed what they were compelled to leave behind them there is a catalogue of twelve cities in this valley which they burned the inhabitants too were treated with the utmost cruelty some were seized and compelled to follow the army as slaves others were slain and others still were subjected to nameless cruelties and atrocities worse sometimes than death many of the women both mothers and maidens died in consequence of the brutal violence with which the soldiers treated them the most remarkable of the transactions connected with xerxes advance through the country of phocus on his way to athens were those connected with his attack upon delphi delphi was a sacred town the seat of the oracle it was in the vicinity of mount parnassus and of the castalian spring places of very great renown in the greek mythology parnassus was the name of a short mountainous range rather than of a single peak though the loftiest summit of the range was called parnassus too this summit is found by modern measurement to be about eight thousand feet high and it is covered with snow nearly all the year when bare it consists only of a desolate range of rocks with mosses and a few alpine plants growing on the sheltered and sunny sides of them from the top of parnassus travelers who now visit it look down upon almost all of greece as upon a map the gulf of corinth is a silver lake at their feet and the plains of thessaly are seen extending far and wide to the northward with olympus pelion and ossa blue and distant peaks bounding the view parnassus has in fact a double summit between the peaks of which a sort of ravine commences which as it extends down the mountain becomes a beautiful valley shaded with rows of trees and adorned with slopes of verdure and banks of flowers in a glen connected with this valley there is a fountain of water springing copiously from among the rocks in a grove of laurels this fountain gives rise to a stream which after bounding over the rocks and meandering between mossy banks for a long distance down the mountain glens becomes a quiet lowland stream and flows gently through a fertile and undulating country to the sea 
this fountain was the famous castellian spring it was as the ancient greek legends said the favorite resort and residence of apollo and the muses and its waters became accordingly the symbol and the emblem of poetical inspiration the city of delphi was built upon the lower declivities of the parnassian ranges and yet high above the surrounding country it was built in the form of an amphitheatre in a sort of lap in the hill where it stood with steep precipices descending to a great depth on either side it was thus a position of difficult access and was considered almost impregnable in respect to its military strength besides its natural defences it was considered as under the special protection of apollo delphi was celebrated throughout the world in ancient times not only for the oracle itself but for the magnificence of the architectural structures the boundless profusion of the works of art and the immense value of the treasures which in process of time had been accumulated there the various powers and potentates that had resorted to it to obtain the response of the oracle had brought rich presents or made costly contributions in some way to the service of the shrine some had built temples others had constructed porches or colonnades some had adorned the streets of the city with architectural embellishments others had caused statues to be erected and others had made splendid donations of vessels of gold and silver until at length the wealth and magnificence of delphi was the wonder of the world all nations resorted to it some to see its splendors and others to obtain the counsel and direction of the oracle in emergencies of difficulty or danger in the time of xerxes delphi had been for several hundred years in the enjoyment of its fame as a place of divine inspiration it was said to have been originally discovered in the following manner some herdsmen on the mountains watching their flocks observed one day a number of goats performing very strange and unaccountable antics among some crevices in the rocks and going to the place they found that a mysterious wind was issuing from the crevices which produced an extraordinary exhilaration on all who breathed it everything extraordinary was thought in those days to be supernatural and divine and the fame of this discovery was spread everywhere the people supposing that the effect produced upon the men and animals by breathing the mysterious air was a divine inspiration a temple was built over the spot priests and priestesses were installed a city began to rise and in process of time delphi became the most celebrated oracle in the world and as the vast treasures which had been accumulated there consisted mainly of gifts and offerings consecrated to a divine and sacred service they were all understood to be under divine protection they were defended it is true in part by the inaccessibleness of the position of delphi and by the artificial fortifications which had been added from time to time 
to increase the security, but still more by the feeling which everywhere prevailed that any violence offered to such a shrine would be punished by the gods as sacrilege. The account of the manner in which Xerxes was repulsed, as related by the ancient historians, is somewhat marvelous. We, however, in this case, as in all others, transmit the story to our readers as the ancient historians give it to us. The main body of the army pursued its way directly southward toward the city of Athens, which was now the great object at which Xerxes aimed. A large detachment, however, separating from the main body, moved more to the westward, toward Delphi. Their plan was to plunder the temples and the city, and send the treasures to the king. The Delphians, on hearing this, were seized with consternation. They made application themselves to the oracle to know what they were to do in respect to the sacred treasures. They could not defend them, they said, against such a host, and they inquired whether they should bury them in the earth or attempt to remove them to some distant place of safety. The oracle replied that they were to do nothing at all in respect to the sacred treasures. The divinity, it said, was able to protect what was its own. They, on their part, had only to provide for themselves, their wives, and their children. On hearing this response, the people dismissed all care in respect to the treasures of the temple and of the shrine, and made arrangements for removing their families and their own effects to some place of safety toward the southward. The military force of the city and a small number of the inhabitants alone remained. When the Persians began to draw near, a prodigy occurred in the temple, which seemed intended to warn the profane invaders away. It seems that there was a suit of arms, of a costly character doubtless, and highly decorated with gold and gems, the present probably of some Grecian state or king, which were hung in an inner and sacred apartment of the temple and which it was sacrilegious for any human hand to touch. These arms were found on the day when the Persians were approaching, removed to the outward front of the temple. The priest who first observed them was struck with amazement and awe. He spread the intelligence among the soldiers and the people that remained, and the circumstance awakened in them great animation and courage nor were the hopes of divine interposition which this wonder awakened disappointed in the end for as soon as the detachment of persians came near the hill on which delphi was situated loud thunder burst from the sky and a bolt descending upon the precipices near the town detached two enormous masses of rock which rolled down upon the ranks of the invaders the delphian soldiers taking advantage of the scene of panic and confusion which this awful visitation produced rushed down upon their enemies and completed their discomfiture they were led on and assisted in this attack by the spirits of two ancient heroes who had been natives of the country and to whom two of the temples of delphi 
had been consecrated. These spirits appeared in the form of tall and full-armed warriors who led the attack and performed prodigies of strength and valor in the onset upon the Persians, and then, when the battle was over, disappeared as mysteriously as they came. In the meantime, the great body of the army of Xerxes, with the monarch at their head, was advancing on Athens. During his advance, the city had been in a continual state of panic and confusion. In the first place, when the Greek fleet had concluded to give up the contest in the Artemisian Channel before the Battle of Thermopylae and had passed around to Salamis, the commanders in the city of Athens had given up the hope of making any effectual defense and had given orders that the inhabitants should save themselves by seeking a refuge wherever they could find it. This annunciation, of course, filled the city with dismay, and the preparations for a general flight opened everywhere scenes of terror and distress, of which those who have never witnessed the evacuation of a city by its inhabitants can scarcely conceive. The immediate object of the general terror was at this time the Persian fleet, for the Greek fleet having determined to abandon the waters on that side of Attica, left the whole coast exposed, and the Persians might be expected at any hour to make a landing within a few miles of the city. Scarcely, however, had the impending of this danger been made known to the city before the tidings of one still more imminent reached it in the news that the pass of Thermopylae had been carried, and that, in addition to the peril with which the Athenians were threatened by the fleet on the side of the sea, the whole Persian army was coming down upon them by land. This fresh alarm greatly increased, of course, the general consternation. All the roads leading from the city toward the south and west were soon covered with parties of wretched fugitives, exhibiting as they pressed forward, weary and wayworn, on their toilsome and almost hopeless flight, every possible phase of misery, destitution, and despair. The army fell back to the isthmus, intending to make a stand, if possible, there to defend the Peloponnesus. The fugitives made the best of their way to the seacoast, where they were received on board transport ships sent thither from the fleet, and conveyed some to Aegina, some to Salamis, and others to other points on the coasts and islands to the south, wherever the terrified exiles thought there was the best prospect of safety. Some, however, remained at Athens. There was a part of the population who believed that the phrase wooden walls used by the oracle, referred not to the ships of the fleet, but to the wooden palisade around the citadel. They accordingly repaired and strengthened the palisade and established themselves in the fortress with a small garrison which undertook to defend it. The citadel of Athens, or the Acropolis, as it was called, 
was the richest and most splendid and magnificent fortress in the world it was built upon an oblong rocky hill the sides of which were perpendicular cliffs except at one end where alone the summit was accessible this summit presented an area of an oval form about a thousand feet in length and five hundred broad thus containing a space of about ten acres this area upon the summit and also the approaches at the western end were covered with the most grand imposing and costly architectural structures that then existed in the whole european world there were temples colonnades gateways stairways porticoes towers and walls which viewed as a whole presented a most magnificent spectacle that excited universal admiration and which when examined in detail awakened a greater degree of wonder still by the costliness of the materials the beauty and perfection of the workmanship and the richness and profusion of the decorations which were seen on every hand the number and variety of statues of bronze and of marble which had been erected in the various temples and upon the different platforms were very great there was one a statue of minerva which was executed by phidias the great athenian sculptor after the celebrated battle of marathon in the days of darius which with its pedestal was sixty feet high it stood on the left of the grand entrance towering above the buildings in full view from the country below and leaning upon its long spear like a colossal sentinel on guard in the distance on the right from the same point of view the great temple called the parthenon was to be seen a temple which was in some respects the most celebrated in the world the ruins of these edifices remain to the present day standing in desolate and solitary grandeur on the rocky hill which they once so richly adorned when xerxes arrived at athens he found of course no difficulty in obtaining possession of the city itself since it had been deserted by its inhabitants and left defenceless the people that remained had all crowded into the citadel they had built the wooden palisade across the only approach by which it was possible to get near the gates and they had collected large stones on the tops of the rocks to roll down upon their assailants if they should attempt to ascend xerxes after ravaging and burning the town took up a position upon a hill opposite to the citadel and there he had engines constructed to throw enormous arrows on which tow that had been dipped in pitch was wound this combustible envelopment of the arrows was set on fire before the weapon was discharged and a shower of the burning missiles thus formed was directed toward the palisade the wooden walls were soon set on fire by them and totally consumed the access to the acropolis was however still difficult being by a steep acclivity up which it was very dangerous to ascend so long as the besiegers were ready to roll down rocks upon their assailants 
from above. At last, however, after a long conflict and much slaughter, Xerxes succeeded in forcing his way into the citadel. Some of his troops contrived to find a path by which they could climb up to the walls. Here, after a desperate combat with those who were stationed to guard the place, they succeeded in gaining admission, and then opened the gates to their comrades below. The Persian soldiers, exasperated with the resistance which they had encountered, slew the soldiers of the garrison, perpetrated every imaginable violence on the wretched inhabitants who had fled there for shelter, and then plundered the citadel and set it on fire. The heart of Xerxes was filled with exultation and joy as he thus arrived at the attainment of what had been the chief and prominent object of his campaign. To plunder and destroy the city of Athens had been the great pleasure that he had promised himself in all the mighty preparations that he had made. This result was now realized and he dispatched a special messenger immediately to Susa with the triumphant tidings. End of chapter 10